If you would turn in your Bibles for a reading of Holy Scripture from Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. And there's going to be two readings of Scripture, but I was informed that there, uh, the second passage that I picked, which is Second Chronicles 28, 22 through 27, has too many twos. There just weren't enough. So we're going to read that one, notwithstanding the fact that it's not on the board. But we'll start in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. This is uh, somewhat of an introduction to the king Ahaz, who we're going to encounter later on. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 17. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it too small a thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And again, if you would turn to Second Chronicles 28, 22 through 27. This is a, somewhat a summary of the reign of King Ahaz. Now in the time of his distress... King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the king of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods, and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed, they are written in the books of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Ahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. But they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Our sermon text begins the very next verse, Second Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 11. We'll carry on with Hezekiah and what he did in the beginning of his reign. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inspired words. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. 
In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your own eyes." For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense." Let us pray that the Lord would bless the reading and preaching of his word to our lives. Our Heavenly Father, you who are the God of our fathers, even our spiritual fathers in the the faith, we do pray that you would help us to see that those things which were written of former days were written for us, for our instruction. We pray that we might have attentive ears and hearts and minds, that we might listen, understand what your word has to say to us, that we might uh, hear the warnings and heed the instruction and the encouragement given to us from your word. I pray that you would help us to hear and see these things, not with the eyes of our flesh only, but as your spirit illuminates our hearts, that you would help us uh, to understand and to follow what your word says. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. In a few weeks, it will be the new year, and as people often do, some people uh, make New Year's resolutions. I'm going to do more of this in the coming year. I'm going to stop this or that habit. Um, Now, in this passage, we see something which is not really a New Year's resolution, but it's what I've called New Year's repentance. It's not entirely obvious from the passage that we read, but later on in chapter 29, we see that Hezekiah, on the first day of the first month of the new ecclesiastical year, began a great repentance in the land of Israel. Now, there's a difference between a resolution and repentance, is there not? A resolution is simply, well, I'll try to do better about this or that. But repentance deals with things that are moral, where we come before the Lord with sorrow for our sins, seeking to turn away from them and to Him. And this morning, I want to look at Hezekiah's repentance in the land of Israel, the way that he reinstituted the temple worship of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, what was the need for this repentance? We read a little bit about King Ahaz and the way that he turned from the Lord. The Lord went to him and saying, uh, trust in me, essentially. You are in great trouble, Ahaz. Trust in me, and I will uphold you. And Ahaz spurned the Lord. He said, I, I won't do that. I won't put the Lord to the test. And the pretense of piety, he turns away from the Lord. And the Lord says, 
I'm going to give you a sign anyway, a sign what we read of, of Emmanuel. And he tells them, but for you, your land is going to be overrun by the Assyrians because of your faithlessness. And so the land was in great distress during the reign of Ahaz for his faithlessness. And the, the promise in Isaiah 9, the people who walked in great darkness have seen a great light. And the promise that for unto us a child is born. These promises come during the dark days of the reign of Ahaz. The temple of God had been shut up, the priests sent away, and there was no true worship happening in that land. And then the end of Ahaz's life comes, and his son Hezekiah begins to reign. And Hezekiah sees the mistakes of his father, he sees the fact that they've abandoned the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who redeemed his people from Egypt, the God who has sustained them in the land. And he says, we need to turn back to the Lord. We need to put away the, the follies and the idolatries of Ahaz. We need to turn once again to the Lord. So I want to look at repentance in this passage. As Hezekiah leads the people in repentance as they open the doors of the temple, as they clean out the house, and as they relight the lamps and dedicate themselves to the Lord's service. First, opening the doors. We see that in chapter 28 and verse 24 that Ahaz had shut the doors of the temple. He had closed them, sealed them off. No one else would go into the house of God to worship him. And the idols he set up in various places in the city of Jerusalem and in every town of Judah, but the temple of the true God was closed. True worship had come to an end. We don't know how long it was that this happened. We know that Ahaz seems to have had some of a gradual decline, perhaps trying to be faithful in the beginning, but being sucked away as he, as he made foolish choices, as he started to serve other gods. And at some point, uh, he, he ended up closing the doors of the temple. Now, uh, in between that time, uh, he seems to have tried to be innovative in religion. He saw the things that some of the pagans were doing in, in Syria and other places, and he, he said, I think that's a great idea. He tried to bring that into the temple worship a bit, and we read that in the book of First or Second Kings. But eventually, he said, that's it, I'm done. He closes the doors of the temple. And Hezekiah comes on the scene he says, we need to begin by opening the doors, by entering once again into the presence of God. We have sealed ourselves off from the presence of God. We need to open the doors and enter once again into his presence. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Now, we might say, well, that's good for him. Uh, we come here every Sunday and the doors are always open at least as long as, as long as they've been unlocked and we can get in. And that's a good thing. That's certainly uh, part of this is that you know, the, the day that we cease uh, worshiping as the people of God is the day that we have turned our backs on the Lord. But this goes much deeper than physical doors, does it not? As Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in you. Now, sometimes the church doors may be open, but perhaps the doors of our heart or the doors of our inner temple, we might call it, might be closed to the Lord. 
Certainly the enemy of our souls seeks to close the doors and to keep us from going into the presence of the living God, seeks us to keep us from living before the face of God. There's a couple ways that this might work. The first is that we might, um, we might entirely avoid the presence of God. We might close the doors and walk away. We might uh, stop seeking the Lord's face in worship. We might think that's too hard to read the Word of God and to pray on my own or with my family, we might simply stop doing it. On the other hand, we might continue in the external actions, but inwardly, we're not there. We dull our ears and our hearts. We go to worship, and we don't listen. We read the Word, but we're not paying attention. We pray, and we're simply mouthing off repetitious words. Both of these ways keep us from living in the presence of God. How is it that we, um, how is it that we can enjoy the presence of God? Well, we need to do so through the means of grace, through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. These are the things that Ahaz had cut the people off from. He had cut them off from hearing the word um, taught in the temple. He'd cut them off from bringing their offerings to the Lord. He'd cut them off from prayer. And we too need to make sure that we have not closed the doors in our hearts. Perhaps you have turned your back on the Lord, closed the doors to the temple, walked away and sought other things. Perhaps unintentionally, even without closing the doors, you've cluttered the entrance with so many other cares and concerns with the things of this world that you have a hard time getting into the presence of God. Things are not where they ought to be. What do we need to do in this case? Well, this is what James tells the people. He says, when we find ourselves being drawn away by the love of the world, an attraction for the world instead of God, he says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Whereas the prophet Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. We need to open the doors, go back to the temple, open the doors, force your way in if need be, and don't stop until you reach the holy of holies, the very epicenter of God's presence. Turn your heart to the Lord, to the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Confess your sins to him, for he is faithful and just. He will forgive and cleanse. We have this confidence and hope. Now, if one of the priests uh, going into the Holy of Holies, right, on once a year on the Day of Atonement. And what would they find there in the Holy of Holies? Well, the Holy of Holies represents the very epicenter of God's presence. It's the place where God dwells with man. And what was the priest to do on the Day of Atonement? Once a year, he would go in and sprinkle the blood seven times on what's called the mercy seat. Now, that's an English translation of a Hebrew word, um, it's a courtesy of our friend William Tyndale. And what is the mercy seat? Well, the mercy seat is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea is, at least symbolically, that as the priest sprinkles the blood, that God himself comes down and meets the priest there and atones for the sins of the people. And that as the blood was sprinkled, God would accept the blood on behalf of the people and he would dwell with them. He would meet with them there. Now, just as we have a temple 
so too we have a mercy seat that we need to seek. When we open the doors of the temple and we go in, we need to go to the mercy seat. Paul speaks of the mercy seat in Romans 3, verse 25. He's speaking of the Christ. He says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Now, wait a second. The word mercy seat wasn't in that passage. That is in Greek. The way that it's translated in our Bibles is propitiation. It's the Greek word hilasterion. And in Greek, it says this, Jesus is the mercy seat. Now, what does this mean about Jesus? Jesus is the place where sinful people come face to face with a holy God and are not destroyed. Jesus is the place where we come into God's presence and are accepted because of the blood. And this is where we need to be, where we need to keep ourselves constantly coming back to Christ, to his blood shed for us. If you've closed the doors of the temple, if you've cluttered it with various things, if you've walked away from the Lord, then go back, open the doors, go into the holy place, the holy of holies, come before Jesus claiming his blood and righteousness with confidence, and you will find grace. Such was the confidence that Hezekiah had. We see in this passage, he doesn't say, perhaps the Lord will have mercy on us. He says, the Lord has chosen you, priests. Go into the temple, serve him. He will accept your prayers. He will accept your sacrifices. He is the God of our fathers, the merciful and gracious God. We've walked away, closed the doors, go back and you will find grace. Now, Hezekiah, having opened the doors of the temple, he goes in and takes stock of what's inside there. And he tells the priests, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Now, um, this word rubbish here, I think perhaps could be better translated as uncleanness. Think of the ceremonial cleanness that was required of the people of God. Um, And he says, Hezekiah calls this this uncleanness that is in the temple. Now, perhaps some of it was simply rubbish that Ahaz had uh, stashed there in the temple and he wasn't using it for anything else. Some of it may have been various idols that he had set up to worship or implements of worship that were uh, not commanded by God. And, uh, and, he- and Hezekiah says, doesn't belong there, take it all out. Now, as we consider the topic of repentance, remember that repentance involves turning to the Lord. Uh, as we apprehend his mercy to us in Christ, we turn to the Lord, but this requires us to turn away from all our sin. Remember the parable that Jesus told about uh, the man who had an evil spirit in his house. And the man uh, drove the evil spirit out of his house and swept his house out, and he said, well, I'm all done. There we go. My house is cleaned out. Um, And uh, and Jesus says that the, 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 that evil spirit went out and brought back with it seven more powerful than itself. 
And they, the, the final estate of that man's house was worse than the first. When we clean out, we have to fill in with something good. When we turn away from sin, we have to turn to the Lord. We can't serve two masters, as Jesus said. If you, um, you can't keep idols in the temple. You can't worship God one day and then turn to an idol the next. We cannot eat of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, Paul tells us. And in the same way, when we open the doors, we have to take stock of what's inside, what's in there. Now, sometimes what we find in our heart, in the holiest places of our heart, as it were, sometimes we find um, good things that are in the wrong place. Sometimes we take things that are in themselves good, and we put them on pedestals, and they get in the way of worshiping God. Sometimes we have sin in our lives that we won't let go of, that we don't want to get rid of. Sin that, uh, that clogs up the temple, as it were, like so many idols in our hearts. For in order for us to deal with the uncleanness, we might say, that is in the temple, we have to recognize the true nature of sin. Because, let's face it, just like the idols of silver and gold, sin often comes in attractive form. It is beautiful. It is good to look upon. It represents itself as something which is good for us. Think of Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? The, the, the serpent tempted her, and she looked at the fruit, and she said, it looks delicious, and it looks good, good for making one wise. She saw sin, was brought face to face with it, and she said, it looks good. And so sin always does, as the enemy seeks to trick us into thinking that sin is good. But in order for us to drive it out of our hearts, we have to recognize its true nature. This is the nature of sin. First of all, sin is dangerous. Second of all, sin is disgusting. So sin is dangerous. Hezekiah recognizes this in verses 8 and 9. He says, it's because of the people's idolatry and they're turning their backs on the Lord, it says, therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your own eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. Hezekiah recognizes the danger of sin. Sin brings about the wrath of God. The wrath of God comes because of sin. We can't escape this. When we see sin in our lives, we should see something which is deadly, something which is destructive. Although it may look beautiful, it will kill you. And we need to kill it first. Put it out of your life. The Puritan John Owen once said, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin is dangerous. It brings the wrath of God. But second of all, sin is disgusting. Sin might look appealing, it might look attractive or healthy, but at its core, sin is dehumanizing. People are made in the image of God, and they're made to walk after the way of God who created them. What it means to be most fully and truly human is to follow the law of God in holiness. 
And when sin creeps into our lives, it twists the image. It doesn't take it away, but it, it distorts and it ruins, it kills and destroys. It, it um, makes us uh, less and less like God who we are to follow, and thus it makes us less and less human. And sin is at the end of the day of no value to us. It is garbage. It is truly rubbish. And so the priests are called to take it out. And we see later on in verse 17 of this passage, verse 16, they went into the house of the Lord to clean it, and they brought all of the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. They took it out and dumped it. Now, the brook Kidron um, is a place where whenever there's a, a revival or repentance in the land, it's the place where they're always taking and carrying the uncleanness. They take, cut down the Asherah poles and dump them in the brook Kidron. They knock down the idols and dump them in the brook Kidron. It's often also a place where they're, they're found burying dead bodies. They take them and they throw them in the brook Kidron. It's, it's the trash heap. And Hezekiah says, take these down. It doesn't matter that they might be uh, valuable looking or attractive looking. They are rubbish. Take them out and throw them to the jackals. Brook Kidron, by the way, the the name of of the word Kidron means darkness or mourning. And I think there's a bit of a symbolism there. Take them out and throw them into the outer darkness, the place of mourning. Throw them on the trash heap. That's where sin belongs. And we too need to recognize that sin is dangerous and disgusting. We need to take it out of our lives, throw it on the trash heap. Now perhaps some of the things in the, in the temple are things that weren't inherently bad. At least in our own life, sometimes we take things that are not in themselves bad, but we put them in the place where they don't belong. We take things that God has given us, good gifts that he has given us, and we exalt them far above the worship of God himself. We place them on pedestals in the temple. We need to take these out and put them where they belong. We need to to get rid of them from our, our temple that we might worship the Lord. Now, how do we know whether we've taken something good and exalted it to a level that it ought not to be? Well, anything that keeps us from worshiping God, anything that distracts us, when we ought to be focused on the Lord, things that we uh, can't let go of when the Lord takes them, these have all become idols in our lives. We need to put them outside where they belong. So we see that Ahaz closed the doors. He filled the temple with rubbish. Hezekiah comes through, opens up, charges in, takes out uh, all the junk, And then we read this that Ahaz had done in verse 7, that he had shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps. They have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Now these lamps that Ahaz had put out, what are they? We might think uh, the most prominent of the lamps is the golden lampstand that was on the table. Remember, the table had the showbread that symbolized that God is the bread of life, and the golden lampstand that God is the light of the world. And most specifically, this light represents the presence of God dwelling among his people in a dark place. 
It's also uh, very practical, in as much as it doesn't seem that the temple had windows, so it was always dark in the temple. And it was by this lamp that the priests could go about their work. And when Ahaz puts out the lamps, symbolically, he is uh, cutting the people off from the presence of God. He's saying, we are no longer going to live and worship in the presence of God. We're going to walk in our own light. And he has stopped the worship because you can't worship the Lord in the dark. We need light. We need the light of God's presence to shine in our lives. And so, having opened the doors and cleaned house, the priests would go and relight the lamps so they could carry on the work that the Lord had given them and that they might live before the face of God. So when we clean out the, the idols and all the rubbish from the temple, we have to, um, we have to dedicate ourselves to the Lord's service. We have to put something good in its place. Um, we have to put off sinful habits but put on godly habits. You can't simply put off a sinful habit and be okay. This goes back to the parable that Jesus told of the man with the unclean spirit, right, that we talked about a little bit ago. You can't put off a sinful habit without putting on godly habits. And we too, having cleansed our lives of sin and idolatry, need to consecrate ourselves for the task that God has given us. As Hezekiah tells the priest, sanctify yourselves, dedicate yourselves to the Lord's service, set yourselves apart. What does this mean? This means intentional effort to live before the face of God, dedicating ourselves to his service. Now, um, Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 2. He says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's not saying that we have to rebuild a temple and all be priests. He's saying, but he is saying that you are a holy priesthood. What does this mean for us? It means that we too, although we may not be priests, we don't have a physical temple, and yet we need to live before the face of God and serve him in all that we do. We need to sanctify ourselves, consecrate ourselves to the Lord's service. Now, this doesn't mean that we all need to be uh, pastors or missionaries or something like that, right? But in all that we do, we need to do it for the glory of God and in his service. Whether we are called to be um, Fathers, husbands, wives, mothers in our, in our jobs, we're called to work as neighbors, as citizens. In all that we do, we are to be a holy priesthood, dedicated, sanctified to the Lord's service. We might live and walk before him. We don't want to divide our lives. Okay, now I'm at church, now I'm you know, in the holy place, and now I've gone to my job and it's something different. But in all that we do, we are to be consecrated to the Lord's service. We are to light the lamp of God's presence in our lives and to walk before him wherever we go and whatever we do, to live before the face of God. And how do we do this? Well, we do this, again, by the means of grace, through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. As we have the word of God hidden in our hearts, as we pray without ceasing, as Paul says, 
In all places, we seek to honor the Lord in what we do and what we say as we rely on the Lord and and the, the sacraments, reminding ourselves of the validity, the meaning of our baptism, that we belong to Him as we partake of the Lord's Supper with the people of God, reminding ourselves of the shed blood, the broken body of Christ. And by the way, um, you'll notice that uh, the next chapter, having cleaned out the temple, what is the first thing that Hezekiah does? He says, we need to celebrate the Passover. We need the means of grace. We need this reminder. We need the work of the Spirit in our lives through these ways. So he says, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel. And Hezekiah is not saying that he wants his own covenant. We think of the Noahic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. He's not saying that he wants to make the Hezekiah covenant. He simply means that he wants to renew the covenant, the covenant of grace that God has made with the people of God. Um, he wants to um, put himself back in, in the place where he ought to be. And we too are in covenant with God. We who have been baptized have the covenant promises and responsibilities. We who have made vows of membership, those are covenant vows before the Lord. Our responsibility to him and his promises to us. We need to remind ourselves of the covenant of God in our lives, of our responsibilities and the promises. We need to live in light of these things. Don't forget that you are in covenant with the Lord. Baptism is the sign of that covenant, a permanent reminder to you of who you are and what you are called to do. You are called to be set apart to the Lord, to serve him in everything that you do in your life, in all our callings. And so we renew God's gracious covenant with us by entering again into his presence. Open the doors and charge in to the holy of holies. Clean out the idols and the sins that, uh, that seek to drag us down, that so easily ensnare us. Get rid of them as we recognize their true nature. Rededicate your life to God's service. Consecrate yourself for his service in all the things that he calls you to. And go back to God's gracious covenant through the blood of Christ to the promise of washing and regeneration in baptism, and to the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord given for you, the confidence that we have to enter into God's own presence, knowing that he will give grace. Open the doors, enter into his presence, clean out the temple, get rid of sin that entangles, light the lamps, live and walk and serve in the light of God's presence. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you.